in America, you have the freedom to choose. In fact, you even have the freedom to choose whether you break the law or not, but it doesn't free you from the consequences of doing so. I'm Tegan Sigafoos, and this is Shank vs. the U.S. 1918. Today's episode is going to focus a lot on free speech, and it's just a relevant topic back in 1918 as it is now, and how it relates to what we could do, how our government limits our rights, etc. But first, if we'd like to know the whole case with Shank versus the U.S., we should at least know the background of the climate of America at the time, and exactly what he did that put him in the position that we're talking about today. The first thing to note here before we get into all of it is the current climate of the U.S. when this occurred. It was World War I exactly when the issue occurred, but the most importantly, because of World War I, America had passed an act called the Espionage Act in 1917. Now, the Espionage Act of 1917 was also a part of the Sedition Act of 1918. It basically stated that you cannot defame the government at all. Um, anything of that nature that would criticize government and American involvement in the war was considered illegal. Now, this act has been pretty much criticized ever since it came out, but the government's reason for passing so, and in fact what even Woodrow Wilson had said, was that they didn't want to have to defame the U.S. government, hurt its industries. And in fact, to me, it sounds like paranoia. Um, there's also the possibility that it was a paranoia against somebody who would have been a German supporter or someone who would have been a socialist considering the new red wave that had occurred. Americans were very paranoid of it, but that's pretty much all under speculation of the exact reasons for why it was passed. But the issue was, was that people broke it, and that person would be Shank and Barr. Now here's some background on actually the incident that occurred and on Schenkenbar specifically. Now Schenkenbar were self-proclaimed socialists, which was very, very taboo in World War One era, and hey, it's still pretty taboo to this day. So you can imagine the outrage that would come from it. So Schenk, in order to show his discontent for the war and his anti-socialist message, he actually ended up passing out anti-draft flyers. Now, what was in those flyers were basically just ways, peaceful ways, might I add, that you can avoid the draft. It was not forcible, and he did not intend to make anybody do it or pressure them into it. He just had essentially passed out these flyers. Little did he know, though, that he was going to be arrested for it as a result because it had violated the Espionage Act. As a result of that, he was arrested, and he argued that the Espionage Act was actually against his First Amendment right to freedom of speech, freedom of expression, because it was peaceful and he wasn't forcing anyone to do so. He was expressing his views and beliefs. However, that wasn't going to stand in court. Now we get to the landmark case that started the whole thing. Shank vs. United States, 1919, January 9th was whenever Schenck had brought his argument to the Supreme Court stating how the Espionage Act had violated his First Amendment right of freedom of expression and freedom of speech. To me, and to most people, it probably sounded like a pretty reasonable argument, but the court didn't really necessarily think so, and all unanimously agreed, all nine of them, had agreed that Espionage Act was in fact constitutional because the government has supremacy and necessary and proper clause. Essentially, during times of war, the government can do what it has to do because it's a time of war and the state is more important than individual rights, necessarily. 
As a result, the courts held up this idea of big government supremacy over individual rights and freedoms, even though the Constitution and Bill of Rights serves to help protect these individual rights, the government still can do whatever it needs to do or whatever they think is right, whether people agree with it or not during times of war, and can legally argue it because of the necessary and proper clause. I'm going to talk about the results of the case and exactly what that means for viewers today. You may be surprised to know that the Espionage Act still exists. No, it was never removed, appealed, anything at all. There was never a moment to replace it, and so it has been appealed. It has always been there, but goes under constant different names. In fact, there's even a recent case in 2013 with a CIA agent. Might come in the executive order in 9066. That might not ring a bell, but if I told you it was the Japanese internment camps, that probably would. Yes, during World War II, Americans had locked up Japanese in America, even though they were citizens, out of fear that they were all spies, I guess. And for people, Japanese citizens specifically, that was a very real thing for them. But we'll talk about things that currently affect you or could have an impact on you. Um, and a really big issue that people face these days is campus free speech. Um, you also see a lot of those jokes everywhere that, you know, campus snowflakes, safe spaces, blah, blah, blah. And for some people, they feel like they need those. And then there becomes this whole blurred line of, okay, what is free speech and what is hate speech? What, what speech is physically harming somebody or causing something to happen? I mean, a very common, obvious answer is you can't yell a fire in a crowded place because you have the ability to physically hurt someone in that act if you're lying about it knowingly. Just like you can't yell bomb on an airplane. Like, you can cause mass hysteria that can actually harm other people and they can get trampled, blah, blah, blah. So these are just a few things that I actually found when I looked up campus free speech. On I've looked at multiple websites, multiple school handbooks, and they answered that free speech on campus does not protect your right to harass or threaten students or create a hostile environment. So that's kind of like what I was talking about with the bombs. It can create an easily hostile environment. Someone can be trampled or hurt, you know, something if you were yelling, something like that, that you know isn't true. So the same thing kind of goes with campus free speech. Um, you're not allowed to harass people, you can't sexually assault them with ver words, you know, verbally sexually assault them. You can't do anything of that nature that's going to cause a hostile environment. You can't request that you go beat up somebody. You cannot walk around and say, hey, let's go beat up John over there. You, you can't do that because that could promote a hostile environment. In fact, people might just respond to it, even though it's an outlandish example I just made up. It's still something that people could respond to violently. And that's what they try to prevent in campuses. In fact, college campuses have really been vocal about what they believe and what the reasoning is behind limiting certain speech for that purpose. In fact, they said the First Amendment and the government does not protect or require everyone a platform. So not everyone has the right to say what's on their mind. They are not required by law to be like, here, every student, you can have a platform, you can voice your opinions. Nowhere does it say that. Um, it also says that campuses do not have to fund student publication. Um, if you make a student newspaper and a student newsletter, they do not have to fund it. You can put whatever you want in there. But if it does fund one, it must fund them all. So as wild as it sounds, someone might have a newsletter about, um, I don't know, cooking, and they fund it. But then someone has a newsletter about some crazy anti-Semitic stuff. They still have to fund it if they're funding the cooking, the cooking newsletter, or they don't fund anything at all. So that is the that is kind of how it ties into free speech and hate speech. 
So now we're going to talk about some actual other Supreme Court cases that have occurred that actually deal with this whole idea. Free speech versus hate speech, and exactly what you're allowed to do and say, and what choices and options you can give people. So we're talking about a case in 1969 called Brandenburg versus Ohio. Essentially, Brandenburg was actually a KKK leader, and they were having a Ku Klux Klan rally. And obviously, Hussein is some extremely messed up racist things. Um, Ohio wanted to lock him up for saying such things, considering that it was hate speech. However, um, all eight judges, whenever, had agreed that it was not indeed hate speech because what he had saying did not provoke immediate and tangible violence and did not physically cause harm. And yes, obviously this is very messed up, but the court said that the First Amendment did protect his right of hate speech, which is very important these days that, you know, some hate speech, honest to God, you know, is protected by the government because people have that freedom under the First Amendment as long as it doesn't cause violence. Actually, and something else very interesting I found about this whole idea of campus free speech was something that um, Trump had actually done recently, um, and I found that where he had just signed an executive order to protect free speech on campus, he's saying, basically he stated that he will not fund colleges that are against, the, that are go against his executive order and limit speech in any way. Um, I didn't really find any details on specifically what he outlines that to be. I don't really feel like reading a whole big government document, I'll be honest. Um, but that's just another way that it's obviously very real if the government is passing an executive order about it, or at least very real to him, um, and not the government. The government's role, basically, in free speech. Okay, just to kind of wrap up what we had just learned about Schenck versus the United States of 1919. Schenck, a self-proclaimed socialist, passed out anti-draft flyers that helped people to peacefully avoid the draft. Um, he did not force anybody to do it. He had just simply passed it out. However, the government stated that he had violated the Espionage Act of 1917 and was defaming the government and harming its wartime industries. He took the court. He took the um, case to the court, stating that the Espionage Act actually violates your First Amendment. Whereas all nine judges unanimously agreed that he was wrong, stating that the First Amendment will not protect you during times of war because the government has this necessary and proper clause, stating that when they need to do something, they can do basically whatever they want, which is a very scary thought, I'm sure. In fact, the whole argument of not really being able to force somebody to do something, you can't really control somebody's choice or right to speak until really after it happens, I mean... You can't really arrest somebody for believing they're going to be an abusive spouse until they actually do something. However, I found something interesting in our next week's case of New York Times versus Nixon. The idea that someone really can determine what choice you're going to make and stop it and stop you from having the choice you've been making it. This has been episode 9, Shank versus United States, 1919. I'm Tegan Sigafoos. Thank you for forcibly listening. Hey, looks like you didn't have a choice for listening to this podcast either. Maybe we should all protest Coach Estes. Is that hate speech? I don't know.